the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. Your only part is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. That's our main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and as always and I can hear thunder out to my back door so um, if it's raining be careful but the safest way to call if you're driving is to use the free KSLR mobile app just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer everything else is hands free well Tuesday we don't have anything at all to talk about so let me get right to some questions that have been sent in. I got tickled with this question. It's from Scott from our email inbox. He said, Pastor Ron, could you please help me understand Philemon? Uh, Was Philemon a slave owner and was Onesimus a slave? I know you've talked about how slavery in the time of the Bible was not the same type of slavery that the Western world experienced from the 19th century on. How does their slavery differ? Oh, and how do I really pronounce Philemon? Is it Philemon or Philemon? Um, That seems to be a point of contention among some believers. Uh, Scott, you're funny. Uh, I love Philemon. And and I just said it wrong because it's Philemon. Um, uh, let me answer that first. The word comes from the Greek word phileo. It's a love. This is a, 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 a wonderful name, uh, but it's Philemon. It's just easier in the West to pronounce it Philemon because we like the long vowels and 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 the uh, the emphasis on on the different syllables. It's Philemon is how you say it. Now, here's the beauty of this book. Uh, Onesimus was a slave and Philemon was his owner. That's really important to understand because you're going to see the hand of God moving in the background through this whole thing, Scott. Um, uh, Philemon ran away. The penalty, of course, for uh, running away as a slave was death and it would be considered uh, theft and uh, that's exactly what Onesimus did. Uh, and one day in his travels, he was in Rome, and he heard the Apostle Paul preaching. And the message hit home. And Onesimus was changed forever. He was born again. He was saved. He actually turned out to be a very important figure in the first century church. He was uh, one of those guys who became um, a leader of of a church or group of churches. But he was a man who was really fruitful. And he was one of those guys who evidently um, just, just got it, got excited, and the gifts of the Spirit began flowing in and through him. 
And uh, he was very useful. And the Apostle Paul was able to see that. And Paul will say in that one chapter letter, uh, he has been very useful to me. In other words, this was a guy that was a, uh, a protege of the Apostle Paul and was just on fire for the Lord. Now, let's go back to Colossae, where Philemon was. Philemon was also an unbeliever, and on one of Paul's missionary journeys, uh, preaching the gospel, uh, Philemon, this wealthy man, uh, was somebody who got saved. He surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ. He got born again, and uh, the reality was um, um, Onesimus gone by this time. Um, They're still looking for him. But uh, he's gone, and Philemon got saved, became actually the pastor of the church that met at his house. Uh, we have his wife's name and his son, uh, who uh, who uh, would have followed him into the ministry. Um, but Philemon was just a man who got radically saved. He owed his spiritual life to the Apostle Paul, and they became very, very close, as is evident in that little letter. Now, here's the beauty. Onesimus uh, in Rome uh, was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He ran away. That was to be guilty of theft. I don't know how or what, but the Lord uh, began speaking to him. The Holy Spirit began speaking to him. And uh, one day he came to the realization that he had to go back and face the music. He wanted to be right with God, and to do that, he felt he had to get right with with Philemon, even if it cost him his life. So he would go to the Apostle Paul, and he would say to Paul, "Uh, I have bad news. Uh, The Spirit is leading me. I have got to go back to Colossae. And and then it would have been um, that moment when Onesimus um, kind of spilled his testimony to Paul. And I think Paul really said, oh, you don't have to leave, do you? You're leaving. I want you to do what God wants you to do. And by the way, Scott and everybody else out there, I've had that same conversation with God many, many times. People that I didn't want to leave, people that were so wonderfully used by the Lord and such a blessing in my life. And I want to keep them around forever. But I teach men and women to answer the call of God. And when they come and tell me God wants me to do this, it's my responsibility to encourage them, to exhort them to go do whatever it is that God is telling them to do. Well, Paul would have been exactly the same. And as Onesimus was telling his story, he would say, you see, I ran away from my slave owner in Colossae, and now I've got to go back. And maybe he just dropped Philemon's name. And the apostle Paul's eyes would have sort of looked up. Did you say Philemon from Colossae? And he would say, yes, he was the owner who, who who I ran away from. And now God wants me to go make it right. And I think Paul probably, and this is just my mind at work here, but I think Paul would sort of put his arm around him and pat him on the back and say, Onesimus, this is going to work out okay. And the letter that we have, Philemon, in your Bibles is the letter that was sent back with Onesimus to Philemon, where Paul was saying, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. And then he said to Philemon, he says, oh, by the way, do I have to remind you that you owe me your very life? And um, uh, it was just it's just a wonderful, wonderful little book and teaches us so much about one taking steps of faith, even when it appears to be uh, a dangerous place we're walking into. But also uh, forgiveness of sins. Philemon, God forgave you of everything. How could you not forgive him? And then, of course, um, all of it worked out really, really well. So that, Scott, is the story, the backstory behind um, the the little book of Philemon. Um, for anybody who's interested, I've studied it a couple of times here at the church. I absolutely love teaching that. And you can find that teaching at calvarysa.com um, under Philemon. And, and I think you will enjoy it. Your other question is, is uh, how does slavery differ back then from here? Well, slavery wasn't a race issue at all. Uh, nobody was... Um, kidnapped. Uh, nobody was um, um, co-opted into slavery. Uh, slavery was a fact of life. In the Roman world, slaves outnumbered free men as many as three or four to one. 
So slavery was a fact of life. It was often the same religion, um, um, slavery. Jews would enslave Jews, uh, but 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 there were there were uh, slave owners. Um, and slavery's been in this world and with this world for as long as there's been people populating the world. Uh, but it was an economic deal. People could be born into slavery. Um, they they could uh, sell themselves into slavery to satisfy debts. Um, so so there are a lot of reasons to be in slavery. But it wasn't a black and white thing, an African or a Western thing. Um, it was just a, the, a fact of life in the ancient world. Uh, and, uh, you know, we read it and say, well, why didn't God just say uh, don't have slaves? Well, he actually did. He said that slave traders, men stealers, he calls them uh, in First Timothy, um, uh, are going to go to hell. He equates them with murderers and, and rapists and kidnappers. And so um, um, God's very direct in condemning slavery. But he also wanted to teach the people in the world at the time they lived how to deal with these things like slavery. So, Scott, that's the whole thing with uh, Philemon. It is a great, great book with a lot of lessons. Here is a question. It's actually not a question. It's just um, he'll call it amusing. Uh, This is from Nacho from our email inbox. Um... Today I read an article about Arnold Schwarzenegger commenting on heaven. He's so close to understanding God's plan, yet so far away. He said, Howard Stern's question to me was, Tell me, Governor, what happens to us when we die? I said, Nothing. You're six feet under. We don't know what happens with the soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in, but I know that the body, as we see each other now, we will never see each other again like that. And by the way, he's true about that. We'll recognize one another in heaven, but this this old lumpy body of mine, believe me, I'm I'm anxious to shed it, and no one is ever going to see it again once I go to be with Jesus. And then Nacho continues, he ignorantly or by accident admits that we do change, as Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen fifty through fifty two, uh, where Paul says, "I declare to you, brothers and sisters." That and by the way, the brothers and sisters—that's the nineteen or the two thousand eleven NIV. Uh, that's horrible. Uh, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Now he's changing gears here because it's going beyond the resurrection, the physical resurrection of our bodies, and he's going to talk now about the rapture of the church. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, those who who are still alive, we will be changed. So um, Arnold Schwarzenegger continued, when people talk about it, I will see them again in heaven. It sounds good, but the reality is that we won't see each other again after we're gone. That's the sad part. I know people feel comfortable with death, but I don't. And then he closes by saying he's just afraid, uh, but as many other people in this world, uh, he's unwilling to find out for himself what is and isn't true. Um, not sure. I really don't have anything to say about that. Your uh, your assessment is right on. Um you know, we would just like to pretend death doesn't exist. And when we're faced with the reality, we just, well, death is all that, all that we have after that. There's nothing. And and we know, we know, uh, Nacho, that that's not true. And you're also absolutely right when it comes to the reason um, that people don't want to find out what's true. Uh, honestly, they're just not that interested. Uh, I say all the time, and I've said it many times on this show, uh, there's one reason people don't accept Jesus Christ. Even those who know that he's true, that he's real, that he died, that he didn't stay dead, people reject him because they don't want to stop sinning. That's the reason. There's no other reason or rationalization. I don't want to stop sinning. And um, um, that's what is true for former Governor Schwarzenegger as well. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Jason. Pastor Ron, do you know who Mike Winger is? He had a question about hell being unfair. What do you think about the reality of hell? Jason, I do know uh, who Mike Winger is. I don't know him personally, but he is a Calvary Chapel pastor. Uh, I know that he has a, a, a vibrant 
um, uh, internet ministry answering questions. Uh, he is a scholar, um, uh, and he digs deep, and uh, he, he, he still is on staff at a Calvary Chapel as a pastor, but he's sort of taken his ministry online because it blew up. Clearly, God is blessing it, and it blew up. And um, uh, you have no problem finding um, uh, Mike Winger. Just go to YouTube and put Mike Winger in there, and you'll get all kinds of things. He is very solid doctrinally. Uh, he is uh, very thoughtful and kind, as we would hope all Christians would be. Uh, and so I have absolutely no reservations at all uh, about recommending him for those of you who would like to go in-depth. Um, um, it would drive me crazy to spend all day online, but uh, it doesn't for him. And, and God is really blessing his ministry, and I can vouch for his heart. Um, the question about hell being unfair uh, and whether or not uh, I think hell is a reality. Um, Jason, it doesn't matter what Mike thinks. It doesn't matter what I think. Um, the reality of hell is given to us in the pages of our Bibles. I have a lot of people that try to convince me that, that a loving God, I had somebody just call a couple of weeks ago on this program. Um, uh, the reality is it's heresy. And what we need to do is take Jesus at his word. The great white throne judgment, the lake of fire, the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The false prophet and the Antichrist, a thousand years before anybody else will be in there. But but the devil, the fallen angels, and everybody who rejects Jesus Christ is going to spend eternity in that fire. It is not symbolic. It is not um, uh, an allegory. Um the reality is that hell's real. Now, Jason, it's important that we understand that because if hell's not real, then God is not just. God is holy. Sin must be punished. It's appointed unto men to die once and then face the judgment. And that judgment is going to be, what did we do with Jesus? You see, Jesus is the only answer for sin. Jesus is the only answer for sin, Jason. And if we have any sin at all, then we're not going to make it to heaven. That's why the blood of Jesus covers us from all sin. He paid the price. The justice of God was satisfied as God poured out his wrath on Jesus so that we wouldn't have to take that wrath. That's really important. And when people say it's unfair... Um, you know, there are different levels of hell, different different levels of punishment in hell. Jesus tells parable about some will be beaten with few blows, others will be beaten with many blows. And the idea is just as there are different levels of reward in heaven, there are different levels of punishment. So somebody who's who's uh, just sort of scrapes by and gets into hell, and, and believe me, Jesus makes it difficult for anybody to go to hell. We literally have to go over his dead and resurrected body. But the reality is, if we make that choice, God's not going to force us to spend forever with him. If, if a man or woman doesn't want anything to do with Jesus in this life, it would be unfair if Jesus forced him to worship him and serve him for eternity. Jesus said, this is the choice you made in life. I will honor that choice in death and we will live separated from God. That's what we call hell. We'll live separated from God, where Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm uh, doesn't die. Um, it's a horrible, horrible place. Luke chapter 16 uh, is a story, an example about that. So, Jason, it's very important we understand this. We are eternal beings. We are created in the image of God. That means basically two things. One, we're created with the ability, the capacity to choose. God chooses us. We have to choose him. The second thing being created in the image of God means is that we're going to live forever. Somewhere we're going to live with him or we're going to live without him, separated from him. And uh, if hell is not real, then God is not just. I had somebody ask me one time, well, well, what would be so wrong? Wouldn't you be pleasantly surprised if you get to heaven and find out that everybody made it? And, and I would say no, because then it would mean the God that we worshipped isn't really God at all. 
If God could overlook murder, what kind of a just God could do that? He offers forgiveness of that sin. But if you think about it, the people that are universalists, and that's people that think everybody's going to eventually make it to heaven, or even those that are annihilationists, simply meaning that, well, we just cease to exist. We die and we cease to exist. There's no punishment in either one of those cases. And God is holy. He must punish sin. Woe is me, Isaiah said, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord. Surely I must die. God is holy and just, and everything, Jason, everything that God does is fair. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions, and we'd love to have them because you're more interesting than I am. Here's a question from Greg. He said, how was the thief on the cross saved if he didn't know about Jesus' resurrection? Well, let me make this one real easy for you, Greg. He's saved because Jesus invited him to heaven. Think about that. Today you will be with me in paradise. And, of course, that was a Jewish understanding of what we would call Abraham's bosom or, or paradise. And um, and Jesus, because he, he saw Jesus died. He listened to what Jesus said. He saw the, the, the wickedness of the people that were insulting Jesus and, and uh, uh, crucifying Jesus. And uh, at some point, he finally said to, his, to the other thief on the cross, now when this all started, both thieves were hurling insults at Jesus. Well, one thief continued, and finally, the thief that went to paradise with Jesus that very day that thief said, have you no fear of God? Now, this is important. He said, we deserve what we're getting. But this righteous man, he's done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve this. So he came to grips with his own sin. He knew and confessed that he was a sinner. And then he believed, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, at that moment, if he could muster up a smile, he would have smiled. And that thief was in the cross. Now, he didn't know about Jesus' resurrection at that point because Jesus certainly hadn't risen from the dead. But I think when Jesus gives us our own personal invitation to heaven, I think, Greg, it's pretty certain that that invitation is going to be honored. All we have to do is RSVP. So that's how he was saved. Here's the last question for this half of the program. Monty, uh, is it possible for us to claim things in prayer that would force God to do what we ask? No, Monty, you're being influenced by um, faith teaching or prosperity teaching, and they wear that as a badge of honor, but the way they understand it is uh, is just absolutely the worst. Um, so, no, um, it's not possible for us to do that. We can't force God to do anything. We don't deserve anything. The reality is God loves us in spite of us. And he's promised us great and wonderful things. But we can't just suddenly decide that, well, I want a million dollars, so I'm claiming it by faith. Or I have a disease, I, I'm claiming my healing by faith. No, we can't claim any of those things God is never forced to do anything except love us, whether we are his or not. He loves us because that's who he is. God is love. So, Monty, uh, the idea, and and please, you're in a terrible, terrible church teaching horrible things. Um, And I, I always like to say that the only thing worse than no hope at all is false hope. And, Monty, those churches are peddling false hope, things it will never, ever get answers. So no, delight yourself in the Lord, the psalmist writes, our, our King David writes, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And simply put, if you delight in him, God will delight in you. And the desires that he has in his heart for you, he will place those desires in your heart. And those are the things that you'll be praying for. You won't be praying for more money. You won't be praying for the winning lottery numbers. You know, Monty, when I first got saved, I I had I had lost a fortune in gambling, and um, 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 you know, I was 
praying real hard for winning lottery numbers. I, we lived in California at the time, and I was praying really hard. And there were times I actually would imagine I could see these numbers. And I had a lot of faith. I'd only go buy one lottery ticket with the numbers that God gave me. But, of course, they never came in. Um, um, but I was listening to teachers who told me God wanted me to be rich. God wanted me to be happy. Neither of those things is true. God wants you to be obedient. God wants you to be humble. He wants you to walk justly in your life. And he wants us to follow him. So when we think that if I claim stuff, God has to do it, that's just heretical teaching, and it is uh, the worst of the worst. It's actually mean and cruel. Might give you goosebumps for a moment, but the reality is people that go to those churches leave those churches poorer than when they went in. So, Monty, thank you for the question. Uh, Find a new church. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word of Standing for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. Have I said before that that's the fastest two minutes of my life? Every day, that two minutes goes by in about two seconds so here I am, and I'm saying it because I almost missed it this time. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Our phones have been quiet. Here is a question from Felicia. Uh, Felicia, I'm sorry. Uh, is Jesus coming once or twice back to earth? Um, Felicia, he's only coming once back to earth. Now, he's coming for his church, but he's not coming to earth. He's going to call us to meet him in the air. So we're going we're gonna to be uh, raptured. We're going to meet him in the air, but he's not coming back to the earth for that. So he, he's not going to come back to the earth. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 19. And that's when he comes back to set everything right. That's when he's going to destroy his enemies. That's when he's going to take control of the world again. Uh, Satan now is the one in control. Again, God has him on a leash. But the reality is that uh, when he comes back to establish his kingdom, um, to to fulfill all of the promises that he made to Abraham uh, and to King David, um, that will be the only other time he's coming back. So Jesus, his first advent was to the earth as a baby. His next advent, when he comes in glory, King of kings and Lord of lords, will be written on his thigh and on his robe. And uh, with a word, he will destroy his enemies. And uh, that really is all that we need um, to, um, to understand. So he's coming back just once. There are people who misunderstand the rapture, and they think, well, Jesus is coming back for the rapture. No, we're going to meet him in the air. In a flash, I just read it last half of the program, in the twinkling of an eye, we will not all sleep or die, but we will be changed. And that's when we're going to be taken up to meet Jesus in the air. Thank you, Felicia, for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from, um, called in question from Reuben uh, in San Antonio. So this is an R. Reuben. Uh, can I get your input on Calvinism? Um, yeah, Reuben, I can. Calvinism is a fruit killer. Uh, it's certainly not true. Now, it's not heresy. So I, I want to make that clear. It's just wrong. Uh, Calvinism, um, the, the five points of Calvinism, TULIP is the acronym. And the five points, um, the T stands for total depravity, the U for unlimited election, meaning God can just do whatever he wants, sort of willy-nilly. Limited atonement, which is the most grievous of all of the five points of Calvinism. Um, Irresistible grace uh, is the I, and the P is for the perseverance of the saints. Um, And basically they're saying, you know, if God chose you, you're going to go to heaven. If he didn't choose you, there's nothing that you can do to, to, to make it to heaven. Uh, that you don't have free will, 
Um, and, um, and and obviously, Reuben, that creates a, a huge difficulty with sharing our faith, um, not with every Calvinist. There are Calvinists that actually are big on evangelism um, and, and out of obedience. But the practical reality is um, you can't tell somebody that God loves them if you don't know if they're elect, if you don't know they're chosen uh, according to Calvinist soteriology. So um, um, I, I've never seen um, a, a, a joy-filled Calvinist. I'm sure they're out there somewhere. I've never seen one. Um, I, I, I've seen very few fruitful Calvinists. There's some great teachers who are Calvinists, except for when it gets to that one point about the doctrine of election. And uh, it, it's just wrong. Yeah, we are we are depraved. The original sin is the issue, but Jesus died for those sins. But we have to make the choice. So that that's a short take on it, Reuben. If you want any more, you can call in or or uh, write in um, with more specifics. I've done a lot on Calvinism. In fact, let me recommend Reuben for you CalvarySA.com. Um, read my Bible studies, or uh, and my notes are on there, but or or you can listen to them, uh, the Bible studies I did in Romans chapters nine, ten, and eleven, because I deal at length with um, Calvinist soteriology. Thank you, Reuben. Appreciate it. Here is a question. This one is from Daniel. Um, he wants to know, why does God give only some people the gift of healing when everyone should have it? Daniel, I wish everyone had it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all we had to do is just touch somebody and pray for them and they were healed? In fact, I'll tell, go one step further. Uh, I, I'm constantly, and we see a lot of people who are sick, um, some people who are uh, physically challenged beyond anything that we can imagine. And, uh, you know, I'll always, oh, Lord, if I could only just go up and touch them and, and they'd be healed. I'd walk away. I don't want any credit, but I can't stand that. But here's the problem. There's no such thing as a gift of healing that's given to an individual to perform the healing. Now, that has been horribly distorted by these uh, faith and prosperity teachers. Um, they'll claim, I have a healing anointing and God uses me to heal. Uh, that's nonsense. The gifts of healing, it's plural in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. The gifts of healing are given to those who are actually healed. And we like to read it because we're a man-centric sort of world. We like to read it that, well, no, the gift of healing is given to somebody so he can lay hands on somebody and they can be healed. That's not what the gifts of healing are about at all. The gifts of healing are received by those who are sick and who get healed. Now, let me say this, Daniel. Um, I do not have the gift of healing. Uh, I keep praying for myself all the time. Lord, I can't see. I'd love to see a little bit better. Um, please heal me. Um, and, and he's told me over and over that my grace is sufficient. In other words, he's made it pretty clear. Now, I keep asking, but he's made it pretty clear that, that this is going to be a permanent condition. And, and as long as I depend on his grace, as long as I'm hanging out with Jesus, I'm going to be fine. I can keep doing what I do. Um, so, so the gift of healing has not been given to me. Now, I have prayed for people and they've been healed. Think about that. I want to be healed, Lord. Well, by the way, the Apostle Paul healed people, didn't he? And he didn't get relief from the thorn in the flesh. So the idea is there are times when God wants to give a gift of healing, but it doesn't come because of me. It's not an anointing I have. But when I pray for people, as the Bible tells us to, sometimes it is God's will that those people are healed. And it's funny, you know, one of the things I always tell people, if you ask for healing, and once in a while, I will say, not often, but once in a while, I'll say um, that the Lord has spoken to my heart and there's there's the power to heal here tonight. And and then I'll always tell him, look, what you need to do if you need to be healed, if you physically you need to be touched by the Lord, you need to be able to say, Lord, I promise that if you heal me, I'll use all of the strength for your glory. 
I'll be obedient. I'll serve you. And you know there are people that won't come forward because being disobedient is more important to them than being healed. And yet there are times, Daniel, when God does heal people and uh, and we rejoice with them. I just wish that we could heal so many more. So many more. I know that's not the way of the world. I know we live in a fallen world. Outwardly, Paul writes, we're wasting away. Uh, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day in the image of Jesus Christ. So we're we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And yet outwardly, and my body is proof of it, outwardly, we are wasting away. So um, when you say when everyone should have it, um, the presumption is that um, God kind of owes us healing uh, when, in fact, that's not true. One other comment on this, Daniel. I don't know whether it's the case with you or not, but it is clear that a lot of people believe that uh, healing is included in the atonement. Uh, By his stripes, Isaiah 53 says, we are healed. And that's the people who claim um, that, that God has to heal you because he made that promise. He wasn't talking about physical healing on two occasions in the New Testament. We're given the healing that that atonement uh, refers to, and it's the healing of the one fatal disease for everybody, and that's the disease of sin. So physical healing is not promised in the atonement. It's not even uh, given the, the room to put it there because that's not at all what's being spoken of. We just see the word. By his stripes, we are healed. He was punished. We're going to be made well. That's simply not what the Bible says. That's why we need to be men and women, uh, workmen and women who rightly divide the word of God. Serious students of the word. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a good question from William. He asked, Pastor Ron, what do you think is the right size for a church to be? I don't understand the appeal of megachurches, he says. Um, William... Um, mega churches are, are weird. And, and when I say weird, I don't mean that in a negative way. But, you know, um, and we're no mega church. So I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to sound like I'm an expert on something that I'm not. But we've got a lot of people, more people than our building can handle. Um, but, you know, we're, we can't stop people from coming. If God leads them to come, then our doors have to be open. Not only our doors, but our arms and our hearts have to be open as well. Um, so I've always wondered. I don't know what the right size for a church is. I get a little frustrated at times. It's even worse for me because of my vision. But I get frustrated because there are people that have been coming to my church for years that I don't know. You know, it's it's one thing if they come for a couple of weeks and I don't know them. That's That's to be expected. But there's times when I don't know. And Paula will say, oh, yeah, they've been coming here for 10 years. And it's because I don't see them. They don't come up and and get in my face. And by that, I mean in a good way to introduce themselves. And so I try to encourage people here. Uh, For me, the perfect size church would be a church where I could know everybody's name. I could know their stories. Um, But you see, I don't get to decide what the right size for a church is. And I know mega churches who who uh, uh, have uh, probably would say the same thing. They'd like to know everybody in their church, but my goodness, if God keeps bringing people to the church, uh, why? Um, I mean, what are they supposed to do? I, I tell you, it's what we're in the process of trying to work through now. We just need to get a bigger building so more people can come as long as God wants to bring them. There are people like really small churches. There are people like medium-sized churches. And there are some people, uh, I think, sometimes for the wrong reasons that like the mega churches. My biggest issue with the mega church is usually to get that big, they're compromising the message. And it's easy for somebody to be invisible in a church of thousands. They can come in and they can go out and they don't really get involved and the body doesn't engage them. Um, so that that's my biggest problem um, with the uh, with mega churches. And I truly, uh, I, I just, if I couldn't be active in the church, if I couldn't be a part of it, if I couldn't know the pastor and the pastors on staff and their wives, I, I wouldn't want to be a part of that church. So I'm with you. I can tell you this, if I would retire, and I'm not thinking about retiring, so don't anybody misunderstand. 
But if I were to retire and try to look for a church, I'd probably go to a church that's in the three to 500 range of people um, so, so I could know people and be involved in, in serving the pastor of that church and serving the people of that church. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Ruben. This is our friend from Seguin on line one. Ruben, thanks for holding your on the air. God bless you, young man. How are you doing today? <laughs> Twice you've blessed me this week. I'm doing better now. <laughs> praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I, I love you, sir. I really I really do from the bottom of my heart. Thank Even you. Even though Ruben. I haven't hugged you, I haven't seen you, but I love you. And I know one day, one day I will be there. One day I will be there. Okay, Ruben, um, I want you I want you to write this down though, okay? You keep okay. saying that, but I'm not getting any younger. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I okay. No, I'm not going to say I promise by this. No. No. Okay. Just leave it in God's hands. Yeah. Okay. But uh like like uh, I told you yesterday, I've been pretty pretty open with you in my struggles and my uh afflictions and and everything and and uh I have a question uh there there's one thing that i and I hate saying like I struggle with it because I know that I shouldn't and I should give it to God, but I don't know how else to put it. It's like you know Paul says the things that I want to do I don't do, and the things that I do <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm very I'm very familiar with that. Yeah. So there's this one thing that just it it the enemy just and I try just like, man, leave me alone. And sometimes I fall, sometimes I don't. The Holy Spirit helps me. Um these things have consequences though. Yep. And if a consequence were to mm-hmm. arise from me falling is, I guess the best, what I'm trying to say is, would God save me from my consequence or would he allow me to pay for the consequence because of my disobedience? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to, it's like I, I pray, every day I pray for this affliction. I call it affliction, just like Paul. Mm-hmm. And I asked the Holy Spirit to give me strength to to overcome it, and He does. Sometimes He does. The conviction comes, and then I'll turn away. Uh, but sometimes it just I don't. And you know, I don't want to tell the Lord, "Well, Lord, I pray every day, and I ask You to take it away, but You won't." And then I fall, and now I have a consequence because I fell. Yep. Can You save me from my consequence? Um, so that's my question. Yeah, Ruben, this it's a complicated answer, but but it but it uh, not complicated to understand. Um, it it just it forces us to really look into our own hearts. Let me say, God is not vindictive. He doesn't get angry. Um, he's not surprised when we fall into sin. Um, but his heart breaks. His heart breaks. You said some days he gives you the strength to overcome, other days not. Uh, The reality is God has given you the strength to overcome every single day. We are already more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when we fight spiritually from a position of victory rather than from a position of defeat, and whenever we're saying, boy, it's just so strong today and the devil is pounding me, um, we're, we're diminishing the power of God. And the reality is that there will always be consequences. And to ask God to save us from the consequences is, theoretically, it's the same thing as saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going to sin now, but I don't want anything bad to happen because of my sin. We don't have the right to approach a holy God that way. So here's the the reality. There are days, Reuben, when you hate your sin with every fiber of your being. But there are other days when you just don't hate it enough. There are days when you choose, and this is not just you, this is everybody. There are days, and wherever we're talking about habitual sin, there are days when we love our sin more than we love Jesus. And we've got to be honest about that. If, in fact, the power has been given to you 
to resist sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 makes that clear. And you don't do it. It's because for that moment, you wanted to sin more than you wanted to be with Jesus. Now, I know after the fact, we all get really feeling really guilty and, um, um, you know, woe is me and what's going to happen now. But, but what we do is what we need to do is to get to that place before. And when people say to me, and this is something I've had all the time, my, my whole time in ministry, people come to me and say, uh, Pastor Ron, God took away drugs or God took away alcohol, but he won't take away cigarettes. And my answer is, look, those other things were going to kill you. Now he wants you to give him the cigarettes. If he's put that on your heart, Romans fourteen twenty three. anything not of faith is sin. Um, he wants you to give him those cigarettes. Cigarettes are going to kill you, but it's going to do it very slowly. But but the reality is, if God's telling you to, to give it up for him, then he wants you to give it to him. And, and uh, our God's not passive. Our role with God is not passive. We can't just say, okay, God, take this temptation. And, and so we need to learn to fight. And, and he leaves those things that won't, won't kill us, Reuben. He leaves those things in our lives to teach us how to fight. It's that simple. And we need to fight. We need to, 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 to fight forcefully. And the way we do that is simply to say, Jesus, today, of my own free will, I choose to serve you. And when temptation comes, I'm going to say no. And in order for me to say no, then I've got to be with you. And and the, 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 the easiest identification you'll ever have, Reuben, is on those days when you give in to sin, the temptation. Um, those are days when you weren't spending that time with Jesus. The times that you resist, imagine the pleasure of God that you chose him rather than that sin. The sin that brings you pleasure only for a moment. But the reality is that uh, Jesus wants it out of your life and you just got to learn to hate it more. Uh, you, you, you mentioned it in Romans chapter 7. Um, you didn't get far enough. Uh, what I want to do, I don't do what I don't want to do. That's what I find myself doing. But then he comes to the conclusion, oh, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? And so often we're so focused on the temptation. I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. And we end up sinning. Jesus said, no, instead of focusing on the temptation, look at me. Walk with me. Focus on your relationship with me. And remember, God is holy. What did he tell Moses? Take off thy sandals for the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. So Reuben, God bless you. I know it's a struggle, and the enemy is going to keep pushing those buttons. Uh, you got to put on your gloves, spiritually speaking, and punch back. Because God has given you the power to do that very thing. Thank you, Reuben. We have time, I think, maybe for another question. Uh, here's one from Jeffrey. Um, why did you object to the term social justice? Isn't this a biblical concern for believers? Jeffrey, social justice um, is unnecessary. Justice, the, the term justice doesn't need an adjective. Um, 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 God wants us to be kind to people. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Um, justice doesn't require the adjective social. There's there's just and unjust. And when the church focuses on social justice, what they mean is let's adopt sort of a, a very liberal or in our days the word is woke uh, theology um, uh, and, and let's just try to help the poor. You know, I've actually had people come to me and say, "Well, well, why don't you give all of your money to the poor instead of instead of having a building instead of why don't you?" Well, because you have to have a place to meet. Um, churches, by the way, are very very generous um, with people, um, but you know we can't fix all of the ill ills in this world. Um, my job is to do with this church what God. Uh, has given us vision to accomplish. And I can't go out and... I can't fix the homeless issue. 
Uh, I can't go out and, and insist that that people who are rebelling against God uh, with their sexuality, as an example, um, are are entitled to the same benefits um, that that I am. Um, you know, rebelling against God uh, is always going to be resisted. So, very simply, Jeffrey, uh, social justice is not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and helping people whenever and wherever we can. But we also have to remember that those people have to accept the personal responsibility to want to be helped. Otherwise, we're simply um, enabling um, freeloading. Um, uh, homelessness is is a terrible plague, and it's going to get even worse uh, because we're, we're, we no longer say it's wrong for you to sit around and do nothing all day if you're able-bodied. So that's why we object to the term social justice. Um, justice is what we should be focusing on. And it doesn't, as I said earlier, need an adjective. Boy, that half hour went quickly as well. Hey, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you listening. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you have been listening to the word to stand up for life. I'll be willing, or I'll be here tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.